Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Music and Spinner.com, where you can get free MP3s, exclusive interviews, and more. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 220 for October 29th, 2009. Listener feedback number 78. Security Now is brought to you by Carbonite, the leader in online backup. Back up your PC or Mac off-site, securely and automatically. For a free trial offer plus two free months with purchase, go to Carbonite.com. Offer code TWIT. And by GoToAssist Express, the easy way to provide instant tech support to your customers remotely. Support smarter with GoToAssist Express. For a free 30-day trial, go to GoToAssist.com slash security. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers all things secure, online security, the browser, privacy, and more. With us, G- Mr. GRC, the Gibson Research Corporation, head honcho, Steve Gibson. <laughs> hey, Steve. Hi, Leah. Great to be with you again, as always. Good to see you. Episode number 220. Wow, that's half of 440. Uh, yeah, well, amazing. we're halfway to 440. <laughs> <laughs> halfway, to, halfway to middle C. <laughs> So, uh, or is that A? No, that's A, isn't it? 440 A. A is 440. Yeah. A below C. Yep. Yep. Halfway to A below C. 220 is probably uh, just A a couple octaves down or something. I don't know. It would be one octave down. One octave yeah. Down. Since, yeah. Since an half. octave is a doubling right, of half. frequency or having. You, yeah. were you, are you a musician? You, you obviously know yeah. this stuff. I didn't know. Yeah. A lot of, lot of software people are. I, uh, I know. I, I was fascinated by synthesis in the early days before it was... Uh, before it was really mainstream, you know, Robert Moog and all that stuff. You made a synthesizer in college. I did. In fact, it was it was one of the things that uh, caused some some angst with me because as a student of the UC system, any intellectual property created by the student or the students or the faculty is the property of the regions of the state of California. And that just really seemed wrong to me. I was inventing stuff all the time. It's like, wait a minute, you know. How how can I be here? I'm paying them. <laughs> exactly. You're not paying me. Exactly. I came up with a way of 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 storing uh, analog waveforms in a digital shift register. Uh, so it was probably one of, as far as I know, it was the first sampling synthesizer. And I showed it to one of the professors of the electronic music lab at Berkeley, whose jaw just dropped open. Because I just, I just, just may, I went ah into a microphone, <laughs> and and it played back ah 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 on and he said vowel sounds. Now that's and, and cool. I, and it turns out that with this whole wall of, he had all these Moog modules, and he said all of this, and we can't make vowel sounds. I was like, oh, okay. Can it do E? I said, yes, it can do E. It can do anything Uh, you want. E-I-O-U. Yeah. Oh, that's so funny. That's cool. Did anything ever come of it? Did you ever? No. No, I got all busy doing other things and, you know, got distracted and never got back to it. And, of course, then the world discovered sampling synthesizers, and that's all we have these days. Right. So Yeah, that was really cool. Very cool little bit of history there. Another surprise about Steve Gibson. You just, you know, <laughs> you're full of surprises, Steve. Oh yes, music, music, and, and programmers, of course, goes hand in oh, hand. Yeah. There's 
lot of programmers who are major musicians. I'm no big time musician. I, you know, took piano. My mom made me, and I'm glad for it now. I have a little more appreciation than I would have otherwise, but never pursued it. It's, it's, it's just a left brain dominance or something. Yeah, there uh, you go. Yeah. Or right brain. Right. Left I, never, hand, I can never remember right. which is which. Because <laughs> I am left-handed, so I'm right-brained. Okay. Logic crossover. is left, and uh, uh, emotion is right. Correct. Okay. Right brain is ran. I'm looking now. Random, intuitive, holistic, synthesizing, subjective. Looks at holes. Logical. Left brain is logical, sequential, rational, analytical, objective. Looks at parts. Hmm. Yep. I don't know what that means. It's not exactly. <laughs> it's not exactly astrology, but maybe close. As long as you. As long as, and what you want is you want the two halves connected so that's, they can talk to each other. It's very important. Yes. <laughs> Bad when they get disconnected. Yeah. Today a Q and A. Our seventy second in a. Or sorry, I'm sorry, seventy eighth. In a continuing series. Yep. That's exciting. Before yep. we uh, get to that, we're going to get some security news. We'll also get some um, addendum and errata, should there be yes. any. We got them. We got them. <laughs> addendum and errata. We got them. Before we do that, though, I want to mention Carbonite.com, our great sponsor. Uh, today, Carbonite is the backup solution that I've mentioned before. I hope I've mentioned this before to you. Uh, certainly, if you're listening to this show, you know how important backup is. And I probably shouldn't have to tell you that. The key to backup is getting it off-site. And there's ways and ways. Steve Gibson mails discs to Northern California, <laughs> to his mother. That's a good way. Uh, maybe a little time-consuming. Uh, you could have, uh, some people have ro ro rotating uh, hard drives. That works as well. But I've got a way that's easy as pie. Couldn't be any easier. It's called Carbonite. Now, you could try this for free if you use the coupon code TWIT right now. Carbonite.com. No, no credit card needed or anything like that. You just go to Carbonite.com. Use the coupon code TWIT. By the way, if you do sign up for Carbonite with a free trial using that coupon code, you'll get two free months if you decide to buy later. So a little further incentive. Let me tell you how it works. So you go there. You'll sign up. You'll download a little bitty piece of software that sits in your system tray or on the Mac. It runs in the background. It's Mac or, or PC. And uh, immediately it starts backing up to the Internet all of your private files, the stuff that you've done that's so important, your photos, your music, your emails, your financial documents, you can select the folders you want, and it just starts doing it. AES encryption at your end, SSL on the way, so your privacy is secure, and then it's there. Now, anytime you're at anywhere, you can log on to your Carbonite account, see all the files there, download any file you need. That's handy. Should you need to restore it, it's just a click of the mouse. Carbonite, I have a, st a statistic here. Carbonite, has in the, in the three years they've been around, has backed up 25 billion files and restored 2 billion. That's 2 billion files that people would have lost had they not been using Carbonite. That's, that's a pretty good track record. That's yeah, a, nearly 10% of what they've backed up, they restored. Kind of shows you how, yeah. how, you know. I mean, we've talked about that before. I mean, the number of stolen laptops, the number of crashed hard drives. People just, I mean, human error, just deleting files they wish they hadn't. I bet you half of those two, two billionaire people just deleted a file and said, whoops. <laughs> Fortunately, it's saved on Carbonite. Now, here's the, here's the best part. Unlimited backup. Anything that's on your hard drive and your computer for less than five bucks a month. So you don't have to tear up. We've talked about other solutions using, say, Amazon, but you have to pay for every gigabyte or megabyte you store there. You also have to pay for bandwidth. Not with Carbonite. Less than five bucks a month, unlimited backup. Try it free right now. Go to Carbonite.com. Use the coupon code TWIT. 
No credit card needed. You can do a free trial, and then if you decide you want it, and I think you will, you'll get two months free with the coupon code TWIT. Carbonite, it's backup done right. Okay, now that we've got everybody backing up their data... <laughs> Let's keep them some cure. I love doing that ad on the radio because I just feel like that's that it's just a remind even if they don't buy the product, it's just I'm hoping that at least five percent of the people will go, Oh, I haven't backed up and we'll back up. Well, and you know, you can pose the question to someone, what would happen yeah. if your computer didn't like boot? If it if everything that was on the drive was now gone. And most people are like, Oh, Ooh, oh, that's not my good. God, that, you know, <laughs> I, I, you know, all my, you know, my final exam, my thesis, right. my, you know, all of these photos. Uh, you I know, like, I, mean, I like it when they go, that could happen. <laughs> yeah. go, yes, that could happen. <laughs> Many people are in business, including myself, uh, yeah. dealing with the consequences of that happening. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, literally, as I was preparing. The notes and gathering things for recording this with you, like an hour ago, Leo, a pop-up came on my screen saying that there was a new version of Firefox. I, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't run across it in the news since it was literally, well, it was two days ago when this show airs, but it was yesterday for me as, as we're recording this the day before. So I just wanted to let people know that Firefox moved um, the the version three um, uh, train moved from three point zero fourteen to fifteen, so it's now three point zero point fifteen. Steve, Steve, <laughs> we're up to three five now. You're uh, still using an old version of Firefox. Um, I do. I have I have three o fifteen on one machine, but I I am at three point five on several others. Yeah. Three five four is also the new update. Just came correct. Out. Yeah. Correct. And what's interesting is that that you can really see if you look at the at the changes between these two versions, which I did, they're almost the same. So this demonstrates a huge block of shared code yes. between the three o fifteen yes. and the three five four. Do they say um, what uh, what the what the, what's getting fixed in three five four at all? Yeah, um, there was a there was a they both both of these versions, the older and the new, had a crash. With evidence of of memory corruption, which makes people nervous because that's the kind of thing which okay, it's a crash today, but yeah. it's an exploit tomorrow. Right. So they they fixed that. They uh, there were some what they called memory safety bugs, which they weren't more clear about, but in, in their media libraries, which were updated to fix those. There was a heap buffer overflow in string to number conversion. And remember that we talked about a library a couple of weeks ago that was heavily used that had that problem in it. So they're probably catching up with that also. There was a privilege escalation bug they fixed. Another heap buffer overflow in the GIF color map parser. And form history was vulnerable to stealing and so they closed that hole. And all of those were common to both versions of Firefox, showing that, you know, there's a lot of code that they, that they have in common at this mm-hmm. point. And, you know, the version 3.0 is being phased out in favor of, of 3.5.4, um, which has, you know, faster uh, JavaScript processing and other stuff. So just want to let our users, our listeners know that uh, their Firefox needs to be updated if it hasn't told you itself already. Uh, a huge blurb in the news 
uh, in the intervening week since we talked last. And a bunch of our, as I, I saw many of our listeners wrote in to make sure I had run across this. And that is um, a consultant working for one of his clients stumbled on a big problem with Time Warner's um, uh, their, their standard Wi-Fi cable modem router. It's the model SMC8014. So anybody listening who is a Time Warner subscriber who has their, their default SMC8014 Wi-Fi router or knows somebody who does needs to sort of sit up and pay attention to this. It turns out that the web interface to the router, that is the interface that the router's users would use, was being was being hidden. A large chunk of it was being hidden only by the JavaScript, which the router was assuming that the web browser was running. So what this consultant was having some sort of problems that for whatever reason caused him to disable JavaScript on the browser. Suddenly, a whole nother bunch of UI showed up. All the admin side of the router was then, which JavaScript was being used to obscure, was then visible. And by poking around a little bit, he found a... That, that there was a backup file of the original router settings and that the router was still using its default admin uh, username and password and that this router was exposing port 80, the, the standard um, web interface port on the WAN side. So the good news is this is the kind of thing that just running shields up at GRC would show you unless Time Warner was blocking port 80, but I know they're not because other people in hearing about the story started doing port scans of the Time Warner IP space and all of their customers have port 80 exposed because all of their customers with this SMC 8014 Wi-Fi cable modem router are are publishing their web interface to the WAN side. And, you know, as you and I have said to people, Leo, over and over, I mean, that's one of the first things you want to do when you're, when you're configuring a home router is make sure that by default you don't have the WAN admin port um, enabled and opened. And, again, it's easy to check. You can use Shields up just, you know, quickly to make sure that you don't have any ports exposed um, and, of course, the vulnerability is that bad guys are able – it's been conjectured, maybe even able to change the firmware on the router from the WAN side. Time Warner is scrambling madly right now and working with SMC to come up with a, an updated firmware that will, that will fix all this. But this is just a big faux pas. That's you know not good to find out. <laughs> Yeah, we talk about that uh, setting. You know, always turn off WAN uh, administration. Yeah, I wonder Unless, if that's for their uh, text, so that the text could get in there. You know, I just have to think this is just sloppiness. Yeah, I mean, first of all, it's flaky to depend upon 
JavaScript yeah, in, yeah. in you know in the pages that the router is serving to the to the client to depend upon JavaScript not to see the admin interface. I and mean, that's just bad design. And so if you've got that going on, Lord knows what else is happening. I mean, that just sort of says, okay, we're not really up to speed here on <laughs> on our on the design of our of, of our router from a from a usability and security standpoint. No That's kidding. Yeah. crazy. Yeah. And then I did want to note also that there's activity over on the um, FCC and the net neutrality front. Um, the FCC has published a 107 page what they called their notice of proposed rulemaking the NPRM which is is basically a a call for co- for comments from the industry from organizations from commercial providers even from us individual users they have a a 60 day comment period which closes January 14th and the good news is that if this goes as we hope it's going to they're talking about officially putting into law the the kinds of net neutrality enforcement that that you know people who really understand the the net um, are hoping we're going to get, which basically will, as we've talked about before, you know, on the whole net, net neutrality um, uh, idea, is prevent providers from from being anti-competitive essentially for example for like like throttling skype uh connections if skype competes with their own proprietary voip offering doing that sort of stuff the idea being that that they'll that they'll they'll not be able to perform any sort of of unfair restraint of trade um uh filtering of content without without there being some some clear justification and specifically without clearly letting their users know exactly what they're doing. So um, that's all good news. I, I like what they call this because net neutrality really conf- confuses people. A bad term, you're right. Yeah, so they call this, and I think this is good, preserving the open internet. That's the name of the NPRM. I, I think that that's um, a better description of what we're talking about here is keeping it open, preventing discrimination. Yeah, yeah. Good. Well, I'm. You know, I are 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 we allowed to comment? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, anybody is. Yeah, anybody is. I I don't know how how much weight individual voices have as opposed to you know organizations like you know the electronic, uh, you know the 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 EFF for example. I'm sure, they'll say something. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And well, you know, as will we, John McCain. So you know, and, Vin, and yeah. Vint Cerf Vint is Cerf. is very vocal on this. Yeah. And unfortunately, I mean then. On the flip side, you know, AT and T and the the 3G consortium have have you know they're already making lots of loud noises saying, oh, this is going to right. you know impede consumer choice and 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 prevent us from getting the leverage out of the bandwidth, uh, you know, the the airspace that that we've been uh, promised and blah blah blah. It's like, oh, okay, well, you know. I'm glad somebody else has to have the headache of sorting all this stuff. Well, out. yeah, but I, I'm glad to hear also everybody's uh, input. I mean, it, maybe there's a good reason why uh, we yep. should tone the regulations down or not have regulations. I mean, I understand people's distrust of uh, of government regulation. 
uh, especially yep, on something as fast moving as the internet. So, yeah, I agree. Hearing from everyone is is just a good thing. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing that I thought was really interesting, and I'm sure you've picked up on this, I'm beginning to we're beginning to see the notion of internet access being referred to as a basic human right. Yes, right. Which on. I think is really interesting. Um, there's there there's now a big push in the United Nations to to formally declare internet access as a human right and apparently in estonia france finland and greece it is already recognized formally as a a, you know internet access as a human right which is like wow look how far we've come well do you agree i think it i agree i mean i think uh, nowadays uh, without the internet you're kind of left out I agree. Of, of, you're, you're disadvantaged. Yeah. You, the conversation goes on without you. And, and, and some of the very important conversations, like, like political conversations and, and yeah. policy and so forth. Yeah. It just, to me, it's, it feels like a big step. That, that's like a big step. And then, of course, if you declare it that, then I wonder what that means politically and economically. I mean, does it mean that, that everyone has a, if they have a right to internet access, well, from a technology standpoint, that's still not free. Yeah, how, well, and how do you do it? Yeah. 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 And then one little blurb from last week that I forgot to mention. We were talking about um, uh, ebook readers and Kindles. I, I thought it was interesting. I just uh, wanted to bring up to our listeners' uh, attention that Amazon has stated that Kindle buyers purchase 3.1 times as many books. Oh, wow. While they own a Kindle wow. than they historically did before. And I have to say, <laughs> I'm part of that statistic. I, I, it happens to me. I'll, I, there's a sort of a sense of, oh, gee, I want to read that. You know, there's a little bit of that immediate gratification um, that, that, or it's like, you know, you're searching around and you see books you wouldn't have stumbled on before. It's like, oh, interesting. I think I'm going to grab that. So I know that I've sampled a lot of books. So I thought it was interesting, but but Kindle buyers are buying 3.1 times as many books as they did before. I wonder how many how many of those they're reading, or if they end up with unread books piling. I up have unread kid. books in my Kindle. I yeah, have to say, yeah, I do too. Yep, uh, because yeah. it is so easy, and I I'm willing to bet that the same thing. You, if you did a study of uh, iTunes music users, same thing. Ease of access changes everything, doesn't it? Yes. If you can, <laughs> yes. and and let's let's face it, Amazon. With the one-click thing, knows that pretty darn well. <laughs> I mean, they make it so easy to buy stuff. Just click, and you own it. And and the next screen is, thank you for purchasing. It's instant. Wasn't that nice? <laughs> Who cares how much it costs? Yeah, yeah. And then I had a, a fun little blast from the past. Um, a um, a listener and a, a past viewer of ours, Leo, from the screensavers, uh, Kelly Stoll, said... While I knew of Spinrite since the screensaver days, I always told myself I didn't need it since I swapped out hard disk drives at least every year. Alas, my no worries, I can always afford new hardware days are over. I'm looking to get a new SSD drive, but which we talked about last week, I think, or the week before, the solid state disk drives, which are you know coming down in price, still much lower capacity than their their spinning platter cousins and about eh, 10 times more expensive maybe and interestingly not that much faster leo i just i swapped out a 
an, a 75 gig on my little ThinkPad, my X61S for that 64 gig SSD. And it's like, yeah, I mean, I'm doing it for reliability, but I don't see a huge difference in speed. I see I know, a massive difference in speed. Do you really? I wonder if it's a Mac versus a PC, a PC thing. It might be a Windows issue. Make sure that the computer you're using this on, I had this issue because I put it in some netbooks. It has to support e, uh, support the SATA 2 spec or you won't get the speed benefit. So in other words, if you I'll don't check. have the throughput, and I bet you you don't on that S, uh, XS. Uh, on the little XS61S? Yeah, because that's, that's a few years old. Yeah. yeah so you're not seeing, the, in other words, it drives faster than the, your, uh, your pipe. Right, than the interface is. Yep. Yep, that uh, makes sense. Because you do see benefit, of course, because the access time is virtually zero because it's random access. Yep. And the read speeds are very, very fast. And I'll tell you, on the Mac, um, I boot from it. And the boot time has come down to almost nothing after the power on self test. Oh, nice! Uh, once it actually starts, it hits the drive. It's uh, we're here. Uh, <laughs> now cool. I'll tell you, I uh, I just ordered a new Dell uh, laptop for running Windows Seven that uh, only has solid state drives, and I'll let and I'll let you know if I see a similar thing. Oh. Maybe that Windows, because of the nature of its boot process, uh, maybe there's a lot of thinking involved and stuff. Might yeah. have benefit, but boy, the Mac does. You don't see. I mean, applications launch instantly. Wow! And it's it, you get kind of used to it. <laughs> I have to tell you. Uh, I have to tell you. You know. Well, so he says he's looking to get a new SS an SSD drive, but not for another five months. And my current drive has to hold me over until then. And he said, unfortunately, my not very old Raptor drive began to fail, and I hoped Spinrite might help. And considering that it was a Raptor, which I guess he must mean was expensive, it, it was more affordable for me to get Spinrite. Well, Spinrite worked very well and got me back up and running within two hours. Excellent product, Steve. Regards, Kelly Stoll, oh, Windsor, nice. Ontario. Isn't that so, nice? Thank you for the feedback, Kelly. I appreciate it. Another happy Spinrite customer. <laughs> Once again. Once again. Well, it's not, not surprising. I mean, we use Spinrite on everything uh, here before we use those drives or before we put them into a... Um, use and, I, and it gives me this, yeah it just gives me that sense of uh, you know confidence we we really hit our drives hard yeah now we're, oh, you're we're, using them like crazy oh yeah we go through a lot of them but we also we record video direct to them i mean it's really they're 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 getting exercised so yeah it's important to us hey uh, before we get to your questions and we have some excellent questions from our listeners uh 10 phantasmic questions before we get to those though i do want to mention our good friends at Citrix, who have a product that I think you're going to be interested in called GoToAssist. This is for the tech support professionals among you. If you, uh, if you like Steve, you have software that you support, and I know your guy uh, probably makes a lot of support calls or takes a lot of support. Well, probably not with Spinrite. But Tons of email, actually. Yeah, you have a, you have a support well, guy. Yeah, I have a support guy, but mostly he's, you know, he, he's just answering questions about, okay, I've got this and right. I've got that. Will it work for me kind right. of thing? Uh, if you if you have custom software or software that you're supporting, if you're in an IT department, uh, the, the and you know and yet I don't think this happens with Spinrite, but if you're in a situation where you're doing phone support, it's really bad, you know, with Windows and Mac because you know of a GUI gets in the way of support. Okay, now click start. Okay, now go to the accessories menu. I don't even know if they have one anymore. <laughs> go to the go to the control panels. Okay, now open this. Okay, now click that, and it's just painful. You, you almost just say, if I could just reach my hand out and just do it myself. Well, you can. GoToAssist is using that great Citrix remote access technology for support professionals. So here's how it works. 
you don't even, they don't have to install anything ahead of time. You can just, you, they call you up and you say, great, no problem. You can either do this in chat or in email. You, you send them a link. They click the link, downloads a little Java stub, not JavaScript, Java stub. And suddenly you, you're in there and you can see their computer and you can do all the work you need to do. Uh, you can do it unattended once they've installed that. You can set up an appointment to do it without them being there, which is very handy for overnight installs and things. You can run up to eight sessions simultaneously. You install, move to the next session. Scan, move to the next session. You're never waiting for something to complete. Uh, you can also get an assay of what's on the machine, what, soft, what op operating system, what security software, what programs are running right now. All really important stuff for the support pro. That's that's what this pro, this uh, this this package is t is tuned for. It's called Go to Assist Express, and you can try it free as always with all the Citrix products by going to gotoassist.com/security. G O T O Assist.com/security. Look at there are I know there are other support tools. I know people even are using things like Go to My PC to do support, but this is the one that's made for support. And you're gonna you're a support hero when you use this. People love it. I use it with my mom. She just goes, "Ooh, this is so cool." Free customer service 24-7, that's good for you. End-to-end 128-bit encryption, that's good for both of you. Very secure. Try it right now for free. One whole month free. Go to assist.com slash security. We thank them so much for their support of security now. All right, Steve Arino, are you yeah. ready, my friend, for questions? Yeah, Endless questions <laughs> for Steve, but we've picked 10. And number 10 is the security screw-up of the week. <laughs> I love those. Yep. Oh, I love those. Starting with, with Marv Schwartz at Case Western Reserve, a very good school, very good tech school, commenting on the Mozilla Firefox plug-in check that we talked about last week. Steve, by now you already know, I would guess, that in order to get mozilla.com slash plug-in check to work with NoScript, that's that uh, plug-in that you use that you recommend to protect yourself against JavaScript exploits, you have to allow both mozilla.com and, and here's the little catch, mozilla.org. Yes. That's where the plug-in check comes from. Yes, exactly. And, no, I, I mentioned to you when we, when we talked about this, and, again, I recommend this for Firefox users. It worked for you. It wasn't working for me. Uh -huh. Aha. <laughs> and I had enabled Mozilla.com, but then if I just looked again at the little NoScript icon, I would have seen sure. that it said, oh, there's something else that I'm blocking. And then you click on it, and I did when I saw his his note it's like oh no, no. and then i enabled mozilla.org and bang it all worked perfectly so i just if anybody else got caught out by that who i've recommended no script to who are no script users and i know many of our listeners are cuz you know they really do you know they're they're as concerned as i am about the issue of scripting that uh, you know, that's the little catch. They probably were a little more on the ball than I was, and noticed that Mozilla.org also had to be enabled. They are now both for me, and the plugin check works great. And it turns out that my um, I did have one out of twelve that uh, was um, back versioned. I had an older version of um, a QuickTime plugin for uh, Firefox that was no longer current, and so I was like, oh, good. I how would I have known that otherwise? So. You know, as we know, when they go to the next major version of Firefox, which will be uh, 3.6, it will incorporate this automatically. It'll show you if plugins on the pages you're visiting are are back version. It'll let you know that. But again, Mozilla.com slash plugin check. 
uh, is a great service from the Mozilla guys, but you do need both Mozilla.com and Mozilla.org uh, enabled for scripting. Does it, does, so, is there a pop-up that tells you or something that you're getting content from a different page? Uh, well, actually, on, on NoScript, the little, the little icon notifier down in sort of the equivalent of the tray down there in the lower right... It'll if it's blocking the main page, you get a, like a big red slash through the icon, and then if you enable the main page, but subsidiary things are being blocked, it's a much smaller. In my case, it was a little too small, uh, but when I knew to look for, it, it's like, oh, of course, it's just sort of a smaller thing saying the the page you're visiting, we're allowing scripting on, but we've blocked scripting from from somewhere else and in this case it was scripting from mozilla.org and it's again trivial to enable it and i made them both sticky because i trust mozilla.com and mozilla.org um you know and and this way of course with no script if i'm rambling around the net somewhere i don't have uh, scripting enabled oh speaking of which i want to confirm that we do have john graham coming who had to back out last week from our having him on uh, our planned episode um, 221. He will be on 223. So he's our guest next week to tell us in depth oh, about good. JavaScript security. Oh, excellent. Yeah. That's fantastic. So, yeah, I so can't wait. Confirmed. Yeah, yeah good. it's going to be great. Question two. Paul in London, Ontario, Canada. Wonders about making online banking safer. He says, hello, Steve and Leo. Longtime listener, love the show. You both are doing a great service, and I appreciate your podcast every week. Thank you very much, Paul. My question is, my bank is offering a program called Rapport by Truster or Trustier to help protect my online banking transactions. I was wondering if you have any information you could share about the program, and if it's needed when I do my online banking. It raises the question of, why is my bank offering this? Don't they think their security measures are enough? The bank I use is called President's Choice Financial in Canada. Thanks in advance. If you use my question on the show, you guys are great. And Steve, could you make your own OS? Call it SOS, Steve's OS. <laughs> and it can save all of us from the other choices. I'd, I'd use it. An OS built from the ground up with security in mind. P.S. I have a copy of Spinrite. I got one problem, though, Paul. It probably look like DOS. I just got to warn you. Uh, certainly be command line OS. I have a copy of Spinrite and has saved my bacon a number of times. Great product. Steve. Yeah, the problem with Steve's operating system is that it would, it would, you know, we'd all be old and grayer than we already are. <laughs> well, you're going to write one, aren't you, uh, for the PDP 10? Um, I'm going to write one, but it, no one will care. I mean, you know, you know, except five other people who still have old PDP 8s alive yeah. and running. But, oh, that'll be fun. You know, it will really will be fun. That's um, a good. This is your. That's your retirement hobby. It's my retirement hobby. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But so yes, unfortunately, not mainstream on the OS side. It's just too big a project, really, for for one person, and to do it to do the kind of job that needs to be done, it would take forever. But relative to Paul's question, the, this rapport by Trustier, something I've run across a few times, um, and it's interesting. It's it's an alternative to what we've been talking about. We've been talking about the fundamental problems of the browser and server security. So, so this Trustier is a company that's a third-party offering that hardens browsers. 
on behalf of their clients. In this case, their client is the bank. So the bank offers this rapport service. And essentially, it is a plug-in, a, a, a toolbar that you add to your browser. And what it does is it basically does everything they can think of for hardening your browser. For example, it's very much like sort of now we have in our in the most recent browsers, we've got private browsing where history of the things we do are not left behind on the machine. Nothing is written to the hard drive or into the file system, but it's kept in RAM. Um, they actually, they have some DNS hardening technology so that you're, so that the, you're, um, you're not prone to DNS spoofing. They don't go into great technical detail about what they've done, but they make it very clear that they understand that the openness of the APIs in our contemporary browsers, which is what allows toolbars to know where where you're visiting and what you're typing, you know, those kinds of APIs are being leveraged by hackers in order to gain access to what you're doing. So uh, this is a very good thing. This is something, you know, when Paul asks, you know, why is my bank offering this? Don't they think what they're doing is enough? I would argue that the bank recognizes they don't have the kind of control over the other end of their connection. They can have a super secure server and have their end all bolted down really well. But if the user's got malware in their computer that's doing keystroke logging and things, basically the bank is is having to rely upon the integrity of the browser, which they're using to interface to them. So I like this idea. Instead of, for example, the bank developing their own wacky individual um, application to talk to them, they're saying, okay, we're going to use a third party who's got all the technology, bringing this technology to the table of of hardening the browser. So I think it's a great thing. And they've got a whole bunch of banks that are that are lining up behind them and using this technology. Oh, this so is, this is good. I didn't realize when 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 you mentioned it, this sounds like something really good. Yes. I I, I mean this is a, a beautiful a, a, a beautiful reaction to the fundamental problem of that we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks of of this, you know, the whole browser model just being prone to abuse. And so these guys are coming along and saying, okay, we're going to, they, they, you know, they use words like vault and so forth to, to say, we're not letting your data to escape through the browser APIs where the openness of the API is normally, you know, something that allows you to leverage the power of the browser, except in this case, you don't want openness. You want this thing to be closed and bolted down while you do banking. And so this is an add-on for browsers. So I, I think it sounds great. Yeah, yeah, I'm kind of a fan of uh, sticking to your knitting. And if and you know if somebody's really good at security and they that they become the, the per- people who do it, right? <laughs> sticking to, sticking your, to knitting. your knitting. <laughs> the bank that. should do what it does best. Every bank cobbling a solution together is not a good idea. I think exactly. You're exactly right. And then and then we only have to vet one solution and feel secure with that. Yep, that seems like a good way to go. Yep. Okay. In fact, I love it. we uh, we'll we'll be talking to stick into your knitting here in question number four as well. <laughs> Good, okay, I love that. <laughs> Before we get there, Abby Beckard in uh, Cairns, Australia has a Mac OS ten ten tip. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Stephen Leo. Have you heard of the click to flash 
plugin for Safari on the Mac. I haven't. It's a free open source plugin which disables Flash by default, replacing all Flash objects in the page, which you uh, click uh, which with a simple box, then you click to load the actual Flash object. There's something simpler, similar on the Firefox on the uh, Windows and Mac site as well, I believe. I'll find that for you. Apple's reported that Flash causes more crashes under Mac OS X than every other Mac application combined. Now, we should mention that Apple doesn't like Flash and has been trying to kill Flash for some time. It honestly doesn't surprise me that Flash has so many security holes. Click to Flash reduces Flash use only to those times when I want it. A video, a photo gallery, and it eliminates Flash banners and Flash cookies altogether. Oh, I'm going to have to install this. I never uh, allow those Flash objects to run. It's a great security tool. I use it on both my desktop and laptop. As a side benefit, my laptop runs noticeably cooler and with better battery life. I think there is a similar plug-in for Firefox. Yeah, so I just wanted to mention that. I wanted to, to um, notify you and, if, and uh, the Mac users who are using Safari who didn't know. This is the kind of thing which, you know, I just think is a good idea. It's it's going to lower your bandwidth. You're not downloading flash objects. Flash, I mean, we're, flash is one of our you know constant problems that we're reporting from a security standpoint. So it's if you if you don't mind your page having like big dead spots all over it where normally all kinds of flash animation is running. I know it's a huge relief for me to have flash disabled as I do. By, by default. And then if, if I'm going to somewhere where Flash is the reason I'm going, um, then it's like, okay, yeah. you click on it and it, and it runs. You just enable but, it there, yeah. And I tell you, it's, it's strange when you get used to your pages not being, you know, not being loaded with these really obnoxious sometimes, you know, Flash animated ads it's and then, and then you go to you know someone else's machine that's you know running a generic browser where, where flash is is active and stuff is jumping around and the frogs are you know coming out of the out of the ads and all kinds of strange things are happening it's like oh boy yeah it's just better not to have it unless you want it and uh, web 905 in our chat room tells me uh, and i and i remember this now that he mentions the name that the uh, firefox add-in that does the same thing is called flash block Flash block, one word. It's just like no script for Flash, basically. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, we know how you feel about that. Uh, <laughs> well, and you know, I mean, I, I, this is one I would run. I, I, I think this is, I, you know, Flash is kind of a blight on the web, to be honest. It's gotten carried away. Yeah. It's like yeah. it, now there's an escalation of who can make the most, you know, annoying, visually attention-grabbing ads. And, it, I mean, sometimes you look at the page and you know you hope you don't have epilepsy because this thing might trigger a seizure it's just it's there it's nuts how far it's gone there's a move afoot one of the reasons apple doesn't like flash is cuz it's owned by adobe and there's a move afoot to move to an open standard that will allow this kind of animation and video and so forth uh in html5 using uh vector graphics svg instead Available of flash vector graphics yep, yep. And uh, you can do everything. I mean, I've, I've even seen demos on uh, on YouTube's site where they don't use any Flash, and it's it's just as good and backpack is better. Um, it's just that the browsers have to come along and support uh, uh, HTML5, as they are rapidly doing so. I don't know if it'll be any more secure, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll have, it'll be open. I mean, there'll be there'll be problems in the SVG implementations right, until we right. get those bolted down. Right. But so. they'll be open, and people will be able to look at them. And I think that helps a little bit uh, than yeah. having just a kind of opaque box. 
Question four, Paul in Lancaster, PA, wonders about custom apps versus commercial apps. Stephen Leo, the story of the Starbucks employee whose computer got infected by visiting a knitting site. <laughs> he stuck to his knitting and look what it got him. Uh, it raised an interesting question for me. Is it better to write a web application like a forum or an online store from scratch or to use an off-the-shelf system? Well, we know what Steve does, but anyway. I, the way I see it, custom apps allow the programmer to put in just the level of functionality they want without having undue complexity. And as you say, Steve, complexity is the enemy of security. But off-the-shelf apps may be more secure because they're either open, open, source, either open source, meaning there are theoretically more eyeballs uh, looking for security holes, or they're commercial applications, meaning the company's reputation is at stake if they release an insecure application. I'm interested in hearing your opinion on this. Thanks for the great show. The other, he's, he's clearly stated the pros and cons here. Yeah, he has. And, and I think, I mean, he raises a good question. Um, one of the... One of the liabilities of using a custom app is that when a problem is found in it, then the bad guys go looking for all the instances of it they can find because they, they've got an exploit that then they can multiply across all of the, um, uh, all of the instances that are of the websites that are using that app. So that's a downside. Um, in general, for most people, I think that the pro side of using custom, I mean, of, of using commercial apps probably wins because, um, because you, as, as, as Paul says, you get the benefit of many people looking at it, of a company behind it whose reputation, you know, is, I mean, really stands, um, to be tarnished if they make a mistake. Um, you, you, I would say you absolutely want to stay on the on the security upgrade train if you're using a commercial app. Make sure that you keep it current because, you know, we, we, we know, for example, many instances where, where current uh, commercial or open source code, it tends to get static on a server while... The, while the code is being moved forward and being made much more secure, if you're running something four years old, then you've got you know the the a, a huge number of holes accumulating that bad guys can take advantage of. Um, the you know my approach, obviously, as a serious coder, is I want to do my own. I want it to work the way I want it to. Uh, as he says, I want only the features that I want. You know, for example, my e-commerce system doesn't have the, the 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 cart model because i just i or or you know, you don't have to sign up and subscribe and create an account and you know i that i find that kind of e-commerce site really annoying if i imagine i'm just going to go somewhere once i don't want to have to go through a whole bunch of rigmarole just to to buy something i want to buy the software and and get out of there so you know, I, I really do think that there are pros and cons, but in general, for for typical programmers who are not, you know, serious, major security aware people, there is a chance you can, it's a very good chance because being secure is so difficult. Writing secure code is so difficult. There's so many ways that, that you can be caught out that if there was ever someone who really wanted to penetrate your site and focus just on your site, um, 
the exposure that you have, I think, if you do something yourself is much greater than if you use a commercial solution, but then promise yourself that you're going to keep it current and, and, and really make the time somehow to keep the code on your server current. That's so important. Good answer. Question six. Lex Thomas in Research Triangle Park, North Carolina, is reminded of a programmer's adage. we got to do more of those uh, uh, security sayings, by the, the way. The security maxims. Yeah. Yep, we've That's got fun. a bunch. Good, yeah, some of the... Uh, is reminded of a programmer's adage from 1984. While reading some articles talking about the just-released Windows 7 and the imminent Ubuntu release, I stumbled upon an old programmer's adage which was attributed to Datamation magazine. I remember that. Quote, the activity of debugging or removing bugs from a program ends when people get tired of doing it, not when the bugs are removed. <laughs> Datamation, January 15, 1984. For those who are waiting for Microsoft to quit having Patch Tuesday, I'd say they are waiting for Godot. It's funny. that I, I love that quote, so and great. I think it's so true. And it reminded me of something that I, that I read that I've always really appreciated that, that uh, Donald Knuth um, wrote in the preface to a book of his. Now, of course, we know Donald Knuth. He's, he wrote the famous, I've got them behind me. You can probably see them I in see the him. video. Yep, I recognize the, the binding. The Art of Computer Programming. Um, of course, Don was the, the designer of Pascal, which was a language deliberately created for teaching programming and meant to be, you know, to, to really uh, help convey the concept of block structuring and programming without go-tos and, you know, the, the, the Notions of programming. I, I thought Nicholas Wirt did oh, Pascal. Oh, gosh. What am I? Of course I'm sorry. He did Mix. Right. Uh, uh, Knuth wrote right. most of that both book in a, in a kind of a faux uh, assembler it's, called Mix. Exactly. Yeah. It's a pseudo-assembly language. You're yeah. completely correct. I got my wrong, the, the wrong author could forget author Nicholas Wirt? <laughs> um, anyway, in, in, in his preface, to, and th th this is his book on Metafont, which is a huge program. Metafont is... Knuth's uh, typesetting system. Right. And he said, my goal in this work has been to write a computer program of which a professor of computer science might be proud, which of course he is, in spite of the fact that the program must meet real world constraints and compromises. I've tried to explain thousands of details as well as possible using the best documentation tools available. Since I have learned, since I have learned much in the past from reading other people's programs, I have also tried to make my own program sufficiently stimulating that it might give a bit of pleasure to its readers. There aren't many jokes, but several of the algorithms are amusing and/or amazing. And then here's the point of this, uh, which is what I loved. He said, "I believe." Now, this is a huge program, Metafont. I mean, it's big. He says, I believe that the final bug in Metafont was discovered and removed on January 4th, 1986. <laughs> but if somehow an error still lurks in the code, I shall gladly pay a finder's fee of $5.12 to the first person who discovers it. And he said, parens, this is twice the previous amount, 
Of course, he's going in powers of two, so, you know, 512 cents. And I plan to double it again in a year, you see. I am really that confident. And, and, and I love that because it is, you know, it's his belief that this is bug-free code. But it took a professor of computer science who did nothing for years but carefully, carefully writing this one program to produce something that he believes, and apparently it's been pounded on, you know, substantially by a large number of people to be absolutely bug-free. It'll be the first program in history, however. It's well, it, it's because it is. We know that complexity is the enemy of security, and and complexity is 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 the source of so many bugs. It's right. just it's difficult to make a perfect large piece of code. You know, it's, it's interesting that he asserts that it's possible. It's interesting that he asserts that it's perfect. That's kind of interesting. I never, yeah, I never heard that. Huh. Yeah. Hmm. We skip number five, by the way. Oh, well, let's go go backwards. Thank you. I'm upside down. John in Baltimore, Maryland. Oh yeah. Sorry. He's wondering about SSL certificate strength and key length. Steve, our recently uh, a recent discussion of SSL and man in the middle attacks got me thinking. When I needed to update my website with a new web SSL web server certificate that uses 1,024-bit key length. I noticed that both the Entrust Root CA and the Intermediate CAs use 2048-bit key lengths. My question involves the SSL certificate key length of 1024 used by many websites, like Bank of America, PayPal, etc. Is 1024 adequate? And for how long, given, given the evolution of computer power, is it time to consider 2048 bits for standard SSL certificates? It's a great question, and it's something we've never really touched on before. First of all, one of the confusing things is these key lengths, when we're used to, thought, we're used to talking about key lengths like 128 bits, the, the, the reason this is confusing is that these are public key lengths as opposed to symmetric cipher key lengths. The 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 key lengths for symmetric ciphers due to the nature of the way they work are much shorter to offer a an equivalent amount of strength so for example today a one a 64 bit key length like des for example a very old cipher use actually des is 56 bits but and, and an old broken cipher at that yes well breakable um, you know, I mean, it, it can, it, the, the block size is 64 bits, so it uses a 64-bit block, and that's now regarded as, a, as too, too few bits to encrypt at once mm. because there just aren't that many combinations of 64 bits. Well, it's 2 to the 64, but still, um, that, 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 that allows you to, to um, with modern-day computers and memory, to begin to build a table that even if it doesn't include the entire table, enough of it that you can begin to find uh, collisions. So 64 bits is not a long enough block size. That is enough bits to encrypt at once. Now we're at 128. And the key length of, of DES is a 56-bit key. Um, even 64 is regarded as, eh, we'd like it to be bigger. I mean, still, that's a lot of, that's a large number of keys 
But now 128 bits is considered a safe minimum for a symmetric cipher. But all the key lengths change when we talk about public key technology, that is to say an asymmetric and um, encryption and decryption where we use different keys to encrypt and decrypt. Now, in John's question, he, met, he notices that typical SSL web server certificates are using a key length of 1024, 1024 bits. What's important here is that they're also all expiring within a couple years. That is, the the keys that are issued by these um, by the root um, certificate authorities, like you know Verisign, Entrust, and, and so forth, they all have expirations of one, two, th- and typically three years. I haven't seen any that are longer than than three years. So it's that expiration length which allows them to get a, to get by with a 1024-bit key length because they know that no matter what happens, that certificate will expire within three years. The reason the root certificate authorities themselves have double that key length, 2048 bits, is that the certificate authority generally has expirations way out in the future. I, I, I've seen to remember 2038 and sometimes even further out than that. So their, their signing, their, um, their key needs to remain secure for decades. So as a consequence, just as an extra security measure, I mean, it might well be that 1024 would be enough for them, but they're saying, you know, we're, we don't know what's going to happen between now and decades from now. So let's do, let's sign ours, our certificates with a, a double the length, 2,048 bits, because we are confident that that will allow us to, um, you know, not to worry between now and the year 2038 or whenever their certs expire, sometimes even further out than that and now that machines are so fast it's not a heavy burden to have double the bits exactly i mean it's it's the the public key technology is a lot slower but you don't have to do it very often right we got uh, tim lemon in atlanta georgia he tried to give disney the knuckle (laughs) we were talking it'll come back to you Uh, steve my family went to disney world three years ago when entering any of the theme parks we had to swipe our membership card and Scan our index finger for entry. Disney thinks it's like the Homeland Security or something. Uh, then I heard one of your podcasts about this subject. I'd, I always said I'd try my knuckle if I ever went back. Remember, somebody did this instead of this. Well, yeah, we objected to the idea that, that you know, just for something like going through a security kiosk at a theme park, that anybody would be getting your fingerprints. Terrible. I mean, that's personal biometric information. Yeah. So uh, give them the knuckle. Uh, the entrance, uh, last week we, we tried it. La- the entrance wasn't busy, so I swiped my card, then firmly pressed my index finger knuckle on the glass plate. System didn't like it, so I tried again. Same response. Third time, didn't work. By then, one of the employees noticed I was, quote, having difficulty and came my way <laughs> to help. So I gave in and scanned my actual fingerprint. The system let me through with no trouble. 
Based on these results, I have to assume, one, the system's programmed well enough that it realized there was not an actual fingerprint to scan. Two, the system had retained my original fingerprint scan on a file from three years ago, and my knuckle wasn't even close. Or th both. I started to ask the Disney employees, but quickly realized they had no idea. <laughs> Makes you wonder what's really happening with the fingerprint scans, doesn't it? Of course, the point of that is to match, to make sure you're the same person. Yes. Unfortunately... And this is annoying. It's very likely that they're that they do have his original fingerprint, and they re retain it for three years, and will probably retain it forever in some it, insecure database stored in the basement of Disney Central with employees who are as clueless as the 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 turnstile employees who exactly. didn't realize what was going on. You know, in charge of that data. I mean, it is a concern. Um, the the problem of using your knuckle is probably getting a knuckle match the next time you go through. You have to start with later. your knuckle. You got to, exactly. <laughs> Never let them have anything but your but knuckle. Your, yeah, that's, you know, it's a, the damage is done, in other words. And remember which knuckle. Yeah, I mean, the, exactly. The uh, And I guess probably they're not wanting you to, like, share your card around with other people. I'm sure that's the real reason. Yes. And, yep. you know, come on. So the only thing I could suggest is... If you wanted to use a finger, don't use the finger they recommend. Don't give them your index finger. That seems to be the most often scanned finger. Or, or, or don't give them your thumb. Give them your little finger. Um, you know, give them your pinky because, you know, this, the, the system will probably think, wow, this is a small guy. But, you know, who cares what the system thinks? And uh, But my sense is from all the fingerprints that I've seen, a knuckle looks pretty much convincing unless you had some. I mean, it wouldn't fool a human. But I would imagine if you had always given it your knuckle from the beginning, it would probably say, okay, this is the same knuckle we saw before. It's so a, It's a weird fingerprint, but let, I'll take it. Let the guy through. <laughs> yeah. Let him through. Or use your pinky or something. Yeah. Something that won't be of use to anybody. Uh, Eric, reporting from an undisclosed location, asks about port knocking. Port knocking, SSH security and security now. Steve, your show is great. I've been listening since you first started putting out this series. I'm so glad you've been doing it. Thank you. I'm at a university. And recently had someone hack into my SSH server. Ooh, that hurts. Mm. I was using free SSHD for Windows XP. It was very strange in that it didn't appear to someone be someone who got in by brute force. Oh, even worse. It was a first attempt from a particular IP address, and there was no password or username entered into the log, just a connection attempt, and boom, there they were, connected. Since then, I've been working to reformat the drive in case they put a keystroke logger or other malicious software on it and put up more secure SSH infrastructure. But it'd be great if you could spend a few minutes doing a roundup of SSH best practices, specifically something you spoke about many years ago, port knocking. Is it a, com is, is it a combination of stealth mode, port knocking, moving the SSH port to something other than 22, etc.? What is it you recommend? Many thanks, Eric. Well, um, hmm. first of all, if someone gets into your system, then you can't trust your logs. That's right. one, of the, one of the first things that, that forensic security guys know is that your logs are useless, unfortunately, if, if your system's been hacked. And the first fact, thing a hacker does is mess with the logs. Exactly. Cover their, the trace, first, their tracks. Exactly. The first thing they do is to clear the logs in order to prevent you from really understanding what it was that they did to get in. Um, so it's so there's really no reason to believe that 
from the logs, you, you just can't trust anything. So, so from that point, it's not clear whether they used a password or not, how many times they pounded on it. I will say that I've heard many people who have SSH running on port 22, the default port for SSH, that the, the amount of connection and, and um, brute force attempts to get in is stunning. So this is something that is really happening in, in the, on the Internet now and, and increasing. It's going up over time. So with, with, no matter what else you do, there's nothing I would recommend more than not using port 22. I mean, that, that's the default port, so it's the last place you want to run your SSH server. It's trivial to change the port to something else. So, I mean, absolutely do. Some people might say, well, isn't that just security through obscurity? It's like, well, th- this is an instance where you've got massive scanning going on across the Internet of port 22. So why leave yourself open as a sitting duck and allow someone to connect to you? Clearly, you need a very high-strength username and password because what they're going to be doing is just running through a password dictionary trying to think of anything they possibly can to get in. And in an unattended system or a system that you're not watching, they can be sitting there pounding on your SSH server trying to get in. So, you know, absolutely put the port somewhere else. You'll notice if you watch your logs, all connection attempts disappear. Um, and so, sure, someone could scan all the ports at your IP, find a TCP connection being accepted there, and pound away on it. But they don't know what TCP connection it's going to be. And the, 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 the probability of that happening is vastly lower. So it certainly makes sense not to run a known service at a known port unless you have to. You have to run web browsers at 80 because it's, well, practically, because it's really an annoying thing to tell users, oh, you know, go to John's website, but then put colon, you know, 2637. And people go, huh, what? You know, that the colon is the override where you say, you tell your browser to connect not to the default port of 80 or in the case of SSL of 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 port 443, but rather to some random port that you that you specify. That's just not practical. But for your own SSH server, by all means, move it somewhere else. Um, clearly, you want a username and password that will stand up to brute force hacking. That's That goes without saying, because you're inherently wanting to expose this to the Internet, which means here's an exposed service. You've got to protect it. Now, Port knocking, we've talked about a couple times. Um, it's, a, it's a clever approach which allows you to, to use some other system of arriving packets at a given IP to open a port. Essentially, the idea would be, for example, you might try to connect to a certain port at, at the IP, then to a different port, then to a third port, then to a fourth port, and only after four attempts at specific ports in a specific sequence is then the actual port that you want to connect to made available. The point is that connection attempts are 
TCP SYN packets arriving at that IP. So if you had something, for example, monitoring your router's log, the log would notice that you received a SYN packet. It would, it would add an entry in the log that a SYN packet was received from a certain IP. And then when, when you remotely tried to connect to a different port number, it would make that entry in the log. So if you had something watching the log, it could look to see whether the, a sequence of attempted connections to closed ports, these are ports that aren't even open, they're just dead, so they're, they're not going to respond, but they'll still make an entry in the log. So by, by deliberately connecting to a specific sequence over time, that's a way of keeping your port closed. And given that we've got 65535 ports, so that's one less than 16 bits worth of ports. If you had a sequence, for example, of four different ports you had to try, that would be 2 to the 16th times 2 to the 16th times 2 to the 16th times 2 to the 16th which ends up being 2 to the 64 possible combinations minus a tiny bit because you don't have a port zero. So, you know, that's a huge number of possible knocking sequences just to get access to the service you're protecting before you have access to it. So it's a very interesting technology. I mean, port knocking is something, you know, you can... You can Google it. You'll find uh, open source software. There are, there are people who are using it to, to protect services. So, yeah, I mean, that's additional security if you've got a, a service exposed. And, of course, I did a little bit of Googling. I was wondering about uh, the, just the overall security of free SSHD. And just a couple weeks ago, there was an announcement of a denial of a service attempt or denial of service attack that's pre-authentication, which is to say that there is something people are doing which is crashing that service before they authenticate. Well, we know what that means. That means that maybe it's possible to do some sort of a buffer overrun before you've authenticated. And in fact, if since that has happened, someone has figured out how to crack through free SSDH, it may be that it is in fact possible to to bypass the whole username and login process using a, a, a buffer overrun, which has not yet been widely disclosed. We may be right in the verge of like a new zero-day exploit for this free SSD daemon. So, that's something you want to watch for, too. It's, again, another reason to get it off of, no matter what you do, get it off of port 22. Put it anywhere else. Wow. I have to go go change some <laughs> SSH servers. I'll be right back. Uh, we're running them in Linux, though, and I think they're pretty hardened. But mm, it's good to know. Yeah. No. Question 10. Our last question, and it is the security disaster of the week. And the subject... Actually, question nine is our next one. Oh, you're right. Then, <laughs> question ten. I'm, all, I, out of, I'm all out special, of order. We have a special treat for you, too, Leo. A spe- oh, good. Okay, save it. Save they're, it. they're in red. Oh, okay. How exciting. Um, let's start with Joe uh, Dorward. He says he doesn't mind if I do this in Scottish. <laughs> I might mind. 
Others <laughs> might mind. He lives in Berkshire, England, and he realised that the free internet access at the British Library may not be safe. Steve, I was at the British Library in London last week, and there were people everywhere with laptops. Very few had books open. And I realized they were only in the library to take advantage of the free Wi-Fi internet access. Uh, he gave us a long URL here. But uh, yeah, it's it B- doesn't matter. BritishLibrary.uk. What's on? Plan your visit. Wi-Fi. A hacker's paradise, I thought, smugly. They've no idea what they're opening themselves up to. Then I realized. I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry. You're really good at that. <laughs> no, Leo. I'm not. If you're Scott, you're going, oh, that's awful. Uh, okay. It's like when uh, you, you've heard uh, Brits do American accents, and it's just painful to the ear. Yeah. That's what this is. Then I realized, in spite of listening to almost every episode of Security Now, I understand the dangers of open Wi-Fi hotspots, but I don't know how to take advantage of their free Wi-Fi internet access safely. So here's the question. Can you tell me what I have to do to use the British Library's free Wi-Fi internet access safely? Or is it just crap? No, I threw that in. Let's assume the people running the network know what they're doing and there's a bad person already connected. How do we protect ourselves, Steve Gibson? Well, we've talked about this a few times, so I apologize to our listeners who are going, oh my God, we've already covered this, but it's an important it's an important issue. It's doing. Yes, so I just wanted to say again, the... The threat model is that you you want to be safe there where you've got unencrypted connections. Open Wi-Fi means that there is no encryption in the local hotspot. So that because it's an Ethernet, inherently, anybody with a laptop who has a modified Wi-Fi adapter, which are easily found and available can listen to all the traffic that is transacting there in the library. So anybody who is not otherwise secure is sending their email. Sometimes, um, uh, well, you know, many email passwords are are not over secure connections. So, you know, standard POP uh, uh, and SMTP are, are non encrypted connections. So anything that's not encrypted is going to be in the free and completely sniffable. So so really all you have to do is make sure that your the stuff you don't want anyone to be able to access is over an SSL connection. SSL is your friend. It will protect you. So for example, if you're using Yahoo Mail, Hotmail, Google Mail, any sort of web transaction where you're concerned about security, make sure that you have a persistent SSL connection. If you want more than that, then this is where you need some sort of a VPN solution. Um, we've talked about Hotspot VPN, which is a is is open VPN based, um, and there are you know any kind of VPN. This is really what they're used for. Is then all of your traffic will be encrypted from the time it leaves your computer until it gets to the the VPN endpoint, wherever it is, either a service on the Internet. Um, maybe you have an endpoint running at, in, in, in your house, and so you, you link to your home, and then your traffic is decrypted there and goes out on the Internet in the clear. So you just you want it. You want somehow to have encryption active in that area where 
um, the the danger exists, which is in this case, you know, where you're wireless until your data gets to the the the, the local hotspot that the that the library is running. And so, if you if you can arrange that, then you can use their free Wi-Fi internet access safely. And that's true of any anywhere you are, any yes. any hotspot. That's the way to do it. Yes. Finally, I'm sorry, I got this out of order. I got it right now. I think Eric in uh, Eric Nichols in Odessa, Delaware, with the security disaster of the week. Subject: FiOS web crack. <laughs> Say that three times fast. No pack, packet sniffing necessary. I've been a long-time listener. I've heard a rumor that the SSID of a FiOS access point is actually a packed version of the MAC address of its network interface. That's a good way of generating unique ESSIDs. However, they should have stopped there. It turns out that the default WEP, yes, WEP key, is, ta-da, the MAC address of its network interface. Don't! I found this website with a calculator to decode the MAC address from the ESSID. It does use JavaScript. Be warned. FiosWebCalc.webs.com. For research purposes, I tested it there. Yeah, worked on the first try. Pause for the collective groan. Keep up the great work. Say hi to Leo. Oh, my God. Okay, so listen to what this <laughs> oh means. Oh, my God. This is so bad. So they they said, okay, we know that MAC addresses are going to be unique. We know, okay, so j- j- just to remind our listeners, a MAC address is a 48-bit thing, which is 24 bits is assigned to the manufacturer, and then 24 bits is incremented by the manufacturer so that all of their interfaces that they make, 24 bits worth of Ethernet interfaces, will all have, when concatenated with their manufacturer-assigned 24 bits, will have a unique 48-bit MAC address. It's, that's important because Ethernet is, is packets are routed among the Ethernet from one MAC address adapter to another, so you need to have unique addresses. And so this concatenation of, of, the, of the 48 bits is the way that was solved. So then they said, oh, um, let's base the SSID, that is our wireless access points um, beacon ID on the MAC address. That way it'll be unique. And everyone said, okay, you know, that sounds like a, a good thing. Unfortunately... They then, as this, as as our as Eric says, they took the the MAC address and used it for the WEP key, so that all of the wireless equivalent privacy WEP, the the, the default Wi-Fi, will have a different key. Thinking that, that was clever. The problem is, of course, what they're essentially doing is is broadcasting the WEP key. Through the beacon, the the Wi-Fi SSID, which anyone is able to get. <laughs> I mean, it's it's insane. You know, it's, well, they just, that's talk about security through obscurity. They assume that you won't have sussed onto this, and so they, you know, they're fooling you. Right, and there's some packing going on, so that you need a little JavaScript in order to undo this. Can't be too complicated. And so, well, no, and so this FIOS F I O S W E P Calc C A L K C C A L C dot webs W E B S dot com. I went there. There's a little 
a little script that it runs. And so the idea is you put in the, the ESS ID that you get from the access point, and it tells you what the web key is in order to, you know, connect to it right through its security, <laughs> such as it is. <laughs> security disaster of the week. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Steve, a pleasure. Once again, 10 questions, good and true. If you want to watch us do this show live, we do it uh, every uh, Tuesday. I'm sorry, Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific. That's 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 1800 UTC. Uh, next week, uh, I'm going to ask if you can move, Steve, and I'll talk about that after we get off the air because uh, we need a flip-flop with the daily gizwiz. We'll just have to tell John since John Graham Cumming oh. is our guest next week. I, I think so. that makes it late for him, but um, but uh, I have no problem. Well, let's see if we can do it Tuesday at one thirty instead, and if oh, not, oh oh, you mean like like change days? Yeah. Oh no problem. And at time all. a little bit because no uh, the Gizwiz, yeah, because uh, Dick can't do it Tuesday, so he needs to do it Wednesday. So you can nope. watch us do it live next Tuesday instead of our normal time Wednesdays. But you know, forget the live. Just download the podcast. You can get it from iTunes, Zoom, anywhere podcasts are. Offered, and of course, you can get it directly from Steve himself at his website, grc.com, the Gibson Research Corporation. He has 16 kilobit versions. He has transcriptions. He's got show notes. He's got the full version, too, all at grc.com. That's also where you go to ask questions like the ones we just answered, grc.com slash feedback, and to find Spinrite, Steve's fantastic hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. Everybody should have it. If you've got a hard drive, you should have Spinrite. And you know what the slogan is for Spinrite? What is it? It works. And that's simple. Short but sweet. <laughs> and it's true. Simple and true. You can't get better than that. GRC.com. That's where Shields Up is, too, and all the other great free utilities Steve offers everybody to secure their systems. Next week, John Graham coming. This is going to be fun. We're going to talk about JavaScript and why it sucks. JavaScript security, the oxymoron. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> all right, Steve. We'll see you then. Talk to you then, Leo. Thanks. Security now.